0: Uh, We are in a series uh, called Faithful Presence. Um, Last week, we talked about pursuits, how Jesus pursues us. Um, He pursues us into all our absences. And today, we're going to talk about when he meets us in these places of absence, he offers us life. All right, so hear God's word from uh, John chapter 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and all his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, "'Sir, I perceive you to be a prophet. Our, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship.'" And Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we, knew, we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father.'" In spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, uh, we do pray for us today as we gather to hear your word. God, that you would speak to us by your spirit, that you would show us living water. You will show us all the, the places that we think um, hold water but don't. That we think are living but are actually Dead. That God, by Your Spirit and Your might, this morning You might show up to us in such a way by Your Word to reveal to us all those wells that we dig that can't hold water, all the springs that fade out, stop giving, leave us thirsty again. And we also pray this morning that that You would go before us to our team it's in Slovakia, God, that You by your spirit, would be with them in the week that is to to come. The ministry that they're to do with these uh, teenagers, being teens themselves. And uh, we pray that that the thing that they offer is the thing that they need themselves, your living water. That they would be the, the, the same beggars in need of a cup to be filled. And they would offer it to other beggars in need of a cup to be filled. And so help them, God, uh, to do just that. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, I I do want to ask you the question that I think this text begs is, like, what is it that makes you happy? Like, if you were to think about your vision for the good life, what, what does that vision entail for you? What is is the good life where you can sit back? If you were to, to come to the end of your life and you were to look back on your life, what would you say caused you to live the good life? As you sit here now today and as you think about all the things that are happening this week to come, what would you say Like in your pursuit by the things that you're thinking and hoping about in the week to come is the good life? And then what, how, how do you get that? How do you achieve what you think will make you happy? What you think will be flourishing the good life? And when you get it, when you arrive at it, how do you keep it? How do you keep living it? Here in John chapter 4, Jesus is asking this woman these sorts of questions. What is the offer of life that Jesus makes to this woman? What we're, we're talking about here is that faithful presence. For us to be present to other people faithfully in the places that they're experiencing absence is to pursue and then offer life. That's the mission of our church. To do that well, you must know and experience that yourself. You must understand God's pursuit of you. And you must understand the offer of life that's been given to you and that it is real, true life, that it is the good life. And so, like today is an, an, undercover, is an uncovering of that, an examination of that. What are we living for? The offer of life is, uh, uh, through this, this woman, we're going to investigate that. The offer of life to this woman involves three things, living water, true worship, and Jesus himself. The the pursuit of Jesus, remember, in the middle of the day, right? He is seeking a drink, and it brings him face to face with this woman. If you knew who you were talking to, and you asked for a drink, then you would have been given, Jesus said, living water. Jesus gives this woman an offer, and that offer is an offer of life. It's living water. Now, what is living water? Now, for us here, look, we have access, all of us in this room have access, to good, clean drinking water. Most of us know very little about being physically thirsty. Now, maybe you've heard our bodies are 70% water, somewhere in the range of 50 to 75%, depending on your age, And because of this, when we become dehydrated, we start to feel awful. And to the point of thirst, if we ever arrive to that point of actual real thirst, like we are dying of thirst, it is is a type of agony. And and when that agony is met with relief, like deep relief, there's something so life-giving and satisfying with it. Now, we experience this in part when you have been doing something physically active, or when you've been without water and you receive it, like you know what it feels like to have your thirst quenched, to feel and experience that relief. Now, what Jesus is saying to this woman, who understands all of that, growing up in the desert, having to go to the well to get any kind of water, a process by which making that water then clean, right? As much as you need water physically, Jesus is saying, you need it spiritually. And I have something as basic and necessary for you spiritually as you're physically thirsting. I have what you need for your spiritual thirst. And and this water can't be met with this well water that we're sitting around. Not even Jacob's well. Now, Jacob's well, there's lots of theories about which well exactly this is, but the Samaritans have made a legend of this well. Remember, in the Bible, Abraham, his servant, met Rebekah, Isaac's future wife, at a well. Jacob met his future wife, Rachel, at a well. Moses met Zipporah at a well. And the angel of the Lord meets Hagar, the destitute woman, at a well. Now, there's a lot going on here when Jesus meets a woman searching At a well and says to her, even this water will make you thirst again. Right? There's this this thing in the the physicalness of our world and the things that we pursue. It's a a diminishing law of returns. Right? We all run into that. We're going to talk about that a little bit. But but Jesus is saying this water that he gives means if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. It, It... it's actually like a spring, right? A spring is fresh water continually bubbling up, faithfully, always there. It's something that satisfies from the inside out. It, it comes, this is important for us, it comes not from the outside in, but from the inside outside. And, and what Jesus says, it's bubbling up all the way to what he says is the eternal life. So, so what is it? Well, well, we know it's something satisfying, And we know it's something that isn't dependent on circumstances or what's on the outside. And if the grammar is indicative to us, all it takes is one sip of this water. If you taste it, Jesus is saying, you will have this life that bubbles up. So I ask you again, City Press, what makes you happy and what is the good life? Almost always, what do we think of with an answer to that question? It's something outside of us. It's love. It's money. It's success. Maybe it's something more noble like justice and equity. It's experiences. It's seeing and doing and being in places. It's the status that all those things brings to you. Whatever that makes you say, if I have that, get there, then I know that I'll have life. Then I know that I'll have significance. How many of you are searching right now, wherever you're at, for significance? And and the life is like, you're significant, And whenever somebody tells you those words, oh, man, you feel the glory of that. Or it's security. Like, how many of you are just wanting to feel security from the, the buffeting fears that assault you? And if you just could be safe from those alarms, oh, that's the good life. I made it. I arrived. Sir, sir, give me this water. I, I don't want to have to... Notice what she says. I don't want to have to come here and keep drawing this water to quench this thirst. This hits us, right? The, this is the other thing. All waters, all other waters, make us thirsty again. All other waters require new wells. One of the great principles of much of our physical reality The wells dry up. We have to keep working. We have to keep seeking. We have to keep finding different ways to have the same needs that were once met this way be met again. The law of diminishing returns. The woman recognizes that a spring, what a a spring would mean for her. No more wells. no, No more journeys in the middle of the day searching for water. I would love, she says, to have something like that that would satisfy me. Don't you and I get tired of digging up the same dirty wells day after day and then returning to them only to find that they just don't satisfy? I think of the prophet's words in Jeremiah. This is the the well of Jeremiah. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Notice what he says. He's talking to Israel at the time, but it's really to all of us. Be appalled, oh heavens, at this. Be shocked and utterly des- desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewed out, dug up cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. All, right, all the wells that you and I dig to find Satisfaction can't really hold water. It's really why Mick Jagger sings, I can't get no satisfaction, y'all. The well dries up, the cistern leaks. They fail you in the moment when you most need it. You need a fountain of living water. And Jesus says, I'm the one that can give this to you. I can put that well into you. I I can give you this absolute, unfathomable satisfaction that no matter what's happening out here, with your circumstances, with your life events, that in here, you can have life that overflows. And something gets in the way for us comprehending this. Like, like maybe we don't even recognize just how thirsty we are. Like, like maybe we think there's a pretty good chance if we're just looking hard enough, we'll find what we're looking for. It's just around the bend. And this becomes your hope, by the way, it, it, it's not based on someone else, but on you and your drive. You see, the optimism of progressing, the optimism of discovery. I, I just need to try enough things, do enough things, experience enough things, and I'll get there. And you're expecting your emptiness as a drive. Like you're experiencing that emptiness as the drive and the anxiety that you're feeling about what's around the next bend as your hope. And so you remain oblivious to your actual thirst or the depth of your thirst. Like what happens when you start to get dehydrated? Headache, dry mouth, and then much worse things. That happen to your body as it progresses. Like, what are the signs that the thing you're looking for, the offer of life you're expecting, the thing that you think might just be around the bend, isn't there? You're anxious. You're afraid. You're angry. You're blindly optimistic. You're constantly searching. Like those are the marks of someone who is not finding what they're looking for. But to admit that we are thirsty, that we still haven't found it, that we keep giving ourselves away and away and away. Like this is, according to Keller, that few people in life who actually do reach or exceed their dreams, that once they do, they're shocked to discover what? Those things don't satisfy. This is why people sing about this stuff, by the way. If you're thinking you too, you should be, or if you're thinking Hamilton, I just saw Hamilton on Sunday. You're never satisfied, man. You will never be satisfied. Even when you get what you think brings life, what you think is the good life, you get there, and it doesn't. And all this leads to the provoking question. Jesus, in his offer of life to this woman of living water, he still confronts her. He does it gently, and he does it imaginatively. He, he says to her, go call your husband. I don't have one. You're right. You've had five. And the one you have now isn't your husband. What is the thing keeping her from this living water? The five husbands or the non-husband? Is it the shame of her story? Why she's there in the middle of the day? Like Jesus isn't ashamed. Jesus isn't bothered. He is helping her to see beyond Jacob's well to Jeremiah's well. You keep digging water and wells. They don't hold, do they? We find something that satisfies us, we go after it, and to our avail, uh, we binge on it. It could be anything it could be work, it could be the next project, it could be something to buy, it could be like another person. And then you're not satisfied in that pursuit. You're, you're formed and you're shaped. You're predisposed almost to it. You, you binge on it. And when you fail to find the good life in it, you're ashamed. You're either ashamed that you're there doing this again, or you're ashamed that you thought that this could possibly satisfy you. Um, and then you, you, you use that shame as the thing to drive you harder, to be better, to do something different. This is the shame loop we are all stuck in. But we'll never be satisfied. The woman, maybe due to her story, is under no such illusions. Jesus sets the hook. He's not trying to humiliate humiliate her. He is nudging her. If you want to understand this living water, then you need to understand how you're thirsty and how you've been seeking it in your own life, how you've been trying to get it through men and how that isn't working for you, how your need for men is eating you alive and it will never stop. Hope isn't around the next corner with the next man. And the experience of this, right? All the eyes on her, what does she do? She changes the subject. She deflects. I mean, how many of you have been there where your choices exposed you? You're searching. You're digging that well, and what you end up with is dirt all over your face. Like We were at the volleyball court, and Deacon was... Playing in the sand with a bunch of kids, and he comes out. He's wearing Josh Collins' headband, and he has and "Go, Dad! I got a beard," <laughs> and it really does. It looked like a five o'clock shadow, right? How many of us get to these places where we have thought we found the thing, and we're just chewing dust? And what does that do? That shame. It causes us to hide. The woman hides in a theological question. Like the felt needs lead to deeper needs, which lead to deeper questions. Because we're all in the search for the good life. We all want flourishing. And when that vision of the good life is confronted, when the thing that we've been living for gets confronted, we change the subject. We get theological. This woman asked a question about worship uh, Sir, you're a prophet. Because you must be, because we've never met, and you know everything about me. And as a prophet, let me ask you our fathers, the Samaritans, say we worship here on this mountain in the north, but, but you say the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Where should we worship? Woman, well, a time's coming when the place of worship won't be geographical, it will be through a person. He says, You worship what you don't know and the Jews worship what they do know and maybe this is the first point of this true worship right living water he offers true worship he offers and maybe this is the first point everybody worships in a secular age that we live in where the transcendent is re- removed what do we worship and you know if we're talking about this question you know what I'm you know you know what's coming next Or you should. Josh knows. Everybody worships. The only choice you get to make is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing something transcendent to worship is that anything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap, hear me, real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Think about the way wealth is pursued in our country. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body, your own beauty, your own sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start to show, you will die a million deaths before your loved ones finally plant you in the ground. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb your fears. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud. How many of you? have walked into a room and felt a fraud. That you're always on the verge of being found out. The insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They're a default. Now, this is David Foster Wallace, who was plagued so much by this that he ended his own life. Now, I talked to you about Nate Larkin. I want, to, I want to kind of merge his story into this. His story is he wanted reputation. Reputation was everything he said to him. So he set out, so the good life for Nate was his reputation being seen by others as being valuable, wanted, important. So he set out to build that good life, to protect it. And so what that meant for him is secrets. If his reputation was knocked down in any way, he had to hide it. He talks about worship. He says... Because of my desires, I got hooked, first by pornography. And he says, that hook took me places I I never intended to go. How as a pastor and a wife with three children, on his way to a Christmas Eve service, picked up his first hooker. How that led to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Every experience leading him more and more out of control. How he would open himself up to these women because they would never reject him. Notice that core belief that he was the thing he was after. But how each artificial intimacy led him was more and more empty and left him hungrier and hungrier and thirstier and thirstier. But he kept coming back. He resigned from his church because he didn't want to be caught. He was afraid. He would lose his reputation. He hated what he was doing. He screams at God, take it away, I'm tired of doing this. Concluding that God doesn't care about him or can't do anything about his problem until he was caught. And what it took for him to bring all of that shame out into the light all of his performance to be accepted, what it took for him was to have it all taken away. Nate Larkin worshiped, but what he was seeking in his worship was the wrong thing, in the wrong place, in the wrong time. And like David Foster Wallace said, it crushed him. And the crushing weight of his worship, the worship of his reputation, weirdly, ironically, led him to being set, being set free. Everyone worships. Everyone is searching for something that will give them life, salvation. And that thing requires faith that it would hold us up in the finding of it. But most things just crush us. And for, what, for, all, for Larkin, it crushes him. Jesus says, you worship what you don't know. The Jews worship what they do know, and yet an hour's coming when there will be true worship. And this is the offer of life to this woman, worship that's in spirit and in truth. What is this? The offer of life is the offer of being reborn by the Spirit in order to see the truth, that through Jesus she might become a worshiper that God is seeking, that's what that's now Nate would say he was a christian but that like uncovering was a point of being like reborn for him for this woman the encounter she's having with this jesus is a place of being reborn when we read worship in spirit and in truth all those things about water in this passage are pointing to the spirits Free gift, living water, fountains of gushing water. These are words used for God's Spirit, the free gift of God's Spirit. What Jesus is offering this woman in true worship, which brings true life, is that she needs to be reborn through this encounter with Jesus by the Spirit. The Spirit reveals what? Truth. Jesus is the truth of who God is. Right? That God is a seeker that he's seeking worshipers that will worship him as the only giver of life, the spirit leads to the truth who is Jesus. And true worship then is the spirit to the truth, the inward to the outward. And the father is seeking these such worshipers who in this context and frame of reference will see Jesus as a living water. The woman responds, "The Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things." And this is the last point, Jesus himself. What is the offer of life? Living water, true worship. Ultimately Jesus himself. He says, "That's me to the woman. And why do we worship this Messiah? Because he's the living water, because he's now the focus of our worship. He's the spirit who gives life, who points us to the truth. He is the truth. Jesus will say later in John 10, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And notice what he says next. No one comes to the Father but by me. What, the, what Jesus is offering this woman is himself as the place to get to God. She's seeking true worship. How do you find it? She, he says to the woman, it's through me. Now don't miss this. God's pursuit here of a people to whom he will give living water, a people who will be given both the means and the target, right? Isn't this the heart of the battle for us? Like, we live in this world that has lots of means going on all around us, forming us, shaping us, unbeknownst to us. We think we can take whatever tools and stuff in this world, if we use them in the correct way, we won't be malformed. But the reality is you take all those tools and they still malform you. They're forming you and shaping you to worship something else besides Jesus for the good life. And so the means are messed up, and our target for whatever it is we think the good life is, is messed up. And this is true of this woman. Her her worship is deformed. She worships not in truth. She worships what she does not know. Her location leads her off target. The Jews' worship is deformed, too. They're attempting worship apart from the Spirit. Their means of the law, we're told later in the Bible, only leads to death, that they need new hearts. All attempts lead us astray. They, they lead us back to Jeremiah's well, broken cisterns that can hold no water, leaky jars, dry wells. If you build your life on your career, your spouse, your kids, your money, your morality, your causes, your image, your internal searching or fulfillment, like I'm just on a journey, bro, and it fails, and it fails there is no hope for you. Do you know why? Because every other savior, every other offer of life is not life. If your career fails, it won't forgive you, Keller says. It will only punish you with self-loathing and shame. Jesus is the only savior. If you gain him, will satisfy and if you fail him, will forgive you. Your, your career and your moral performance cannot die for your sins. And so in Jesus, we find our target for the good life. Jesus is saying, unless you're worshiping me, unless I'm the center of your life, unless you're trying to get your spiritual thirst quenched through me and not through these other things, unless you see me as the solution that must come inside rather than just pass by on the outside, then whatever you worship will abandon you and you will be left alone in the end. But I will not. These are the worshipers the Father is seeking who know the only way to the Father is through me. Now think about this woman coming to the well day after day, noon after noon, Bringing that jar, going back to her next man, day after day, and then the next one, and then the next one. What about us? What, what, what part of you is that loop? I want to end with this from Chad Bird. I read this this morning. He's talking about carrying the the things we carry in this room, The, the broken cisterns that you're lugging here every day, every Sunday. He says, we carry our heavy silence from last night's fight after the kids are tucked into bed. We carry the bladed words Ripping through the one we swore to love and to cherish. We carry the silence of a marriage in its death throes. We carry such things to church. We carry our buried desire for someone, anyone, to take notice of us, talk to us. Show us that we're not useless human failures, that our existence does matter, that we mean something to someone. We carry our second wedding ring, or if you like, he says for him, his third, along with the golden band, the rusted memories of ex loves, and the stubborn hopes of this time, yes, by God, this time it will last. We carry that picture in our wallet of the daughter we haven't spoken to in three years, four months, and two days the one who has aborted us from her life and whose presence is still as near as the hot tears that rolled down our face on her 25th birthday last week. We carry our disappointment with God with his brutal deafness to our fervent prayers, his wanting stripping away of what once made us giddy with happiness, his frigid silence, When we scream for help, Chad Bird lost his son two days after David passed away on a mountain. Chad Bird's son was hiking on a mountain and died. We carry all these things and much more. We carry them in silence, often wrapped behind the mantle of a smile. Nate Larkin says, Saint Nate was his false self. That was the smile that he wore to church. We carry them to church. And there, standing within the walls of our father's house, is our brother. He carries in his scarred body a heart that only beats the rhythm of love for us. He carries a word on his lips that bears within itself all the power of heaven to heal our deepest wounds. He carries on the shoulder of a, cr- a cross whose wood is stained with the blood of a God who hurled everything wrong in our universe into the black hole of his own cursed death. This brother Jesus, hear this. This brother Jesus is the Jesus of your dying marriage, is the Jesus of your lonely victimization, of your divorce, of your cries as a parent. This Jesus Is the Jesus of the embittered worshiper who strikes out like a wounded child with words that damn his father above? This Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's the Jesus of the soiled, of the shamed, of those who are sickened by what they see in the mirror. How many of us hurl words at our bodies in a mirror? He is embarrassed by none of them. They are welcome in his church. Only they feel at home in his father's house anyway. This is not a place for those who have no problems, never do wrong, or imagine heaven is constantly clapping over their stellar life performance. Such golden people needn't slumming in God's house. Church is for the lost and the losers, the hurting and the bleeding, the walking or the crawling or the carried on by a stretcher wounded. The church is not a mirror-covered gold God's gem to flex our spiritual pecks, but a temple where the defiled are cleansed and made holy. The church is where poor, stinking fools are bathed and robed as sons and daughters of the king. The things we carry to church... These things our brother removes. He stacks them on his shoulders. I'll carry them now, he says. I've got this. If I've carried all the vast wrongs of the world to the cross, surely I can bear wherever you're trying to find life. Whatever pains that caused you, come to me. And this is the invitation he's making to the woman. Come to me. You're weary. Come to me. My child, my beloved, I will carry this for you. Stop trying to be your own lousy excuse for a God. I'll be the only God that you need. I'll pick you up and we'll walk together into the future, be it dark or light or shadowed, raging with uncertainty. It doesn't matter. Yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am the resurrection and the life. And the offer of life to you this morning is that offer. He is the resurrection. So whatever death you might have brought in here this morning, he's offering life to you. Come. Come and take it. He is the offer of life. He's living water. He's the only one that satisfies. Worship Him and Him alone. Let's pray. God, help us as we uh, come to the table. Taste to see that you're good. Help us to taste. Help us to come and take and taste. Taste your grace. Taste your mercy. Your body and your blood for our sin your life for our death help us to come by faith faith that this alone you alone truly satisfy help us to come as your people all of us broken bloodied weary sinners that we are help us to come with dirt still in our mouth help us to come Help us to come and drink from your living water. Help us to keep coming. Help us to see that the one thing we should never stop searching for is you. Give us grace, we pray, to do all of that. By the power of Jesus, through the Spirit, by his word, heal us, restore us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.